Hey, Gavin. Hey, Louie. Oh my god, happy- do you feel the love, Gavin? I feel the love. My heart is cold and dead. So, 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 so no, is what so, you're saying. So yes, is what uh, I'm saying. I don't want to know what you consider love in your life, Gavin. <laughs> you sound like all my exes. <laughs> oh my god, Gavin, literally um, the other night, um, I was barraged by the a, a mega mix of burlesque, like a music mega mix of burlesque. I sent and, it your way. It was me. Derek was like, "Wait, are all these songs burlesque?" I was like, "Yes, it is." Okay. <laughs> I was sitting in this back room in my apartment. Yeah, yeah. Looking at Dan, going, "Tell Louis, it was me." <laughs> you were like controlling the drone that follows me <laughs> yes. around. It just yells air rates at me. <laughs> air rates. But anyways, we, for those of you who are listening to us, we are The Mixed Reviews. We are a film podcast in which we take a film subject such as an actor, director, or a mini genre, and we give you a complete history. And then we talk about what we like and what we don't like so much. Yeah, the reviews, they are mixed. We talk about the good. We talk about the bad. We watch as much as we can in two weeks. And guess what? Sometimes we being friends. We do. So please welcome to the stage, guys. We have here um, a podcast gal of t- around town. She is everywhere. We have Miss Chelsea here um, joining us after, you know, she, I feel, Chelsea, you've been like one of our ride or dies for such a long time. I'm so happy that you're here. Thank you for inviting me. I did leave a review a thousand years ago mm. saying, <laughs> like, saying I was tech available. And yeah. you know what? We have to manifest our dreams. Absolutely. D- absolutely. Um, Chelsea, I don't even know. I know you have. Well, let's talk about. We'll give you your plugs after when we're done. How about that? Before I get ahead of myself, I'm just so but excited. You liter- but you are literally like a, a like a maven, a mogul at this point. Yes, you, yes. You have so many podcasts out, and I, I just, I mean, doing this one is a lot. <laughs> a so lot. I, I can't, I can't imagine. Uh, how, how do you have the? How do you find the time? How does she do it? How does she do it? <laughs> um, I stay up. It's a lot of coffee, a lot of tea, a lot of texting my producers. Why? Mm-hmm. Why? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the good. inability to say no to people. Oh, yeah, that's, that's a good one. Yeah, that's a good one. She's followed yeah. me around a long while. Um, <laughs> that's mm-hmm. say. Runs deep within me. Yeah, yeah. Um, we have some old business before we dive into our new episode. Our last episode, we talked all about the iconic and the recently departed Miss Cicely Tyson. Um, and we asked you guys to go online and vote for your favorite movie. And the results are in. In last place with 5% was The River Niger. Uh, 10% was Roots. A really close first and second place. We had 40% with Sounder and 45% goes uh, to the autobiography of Miss Jane Pittman, which was both me and Gavin's pick. Uh, yes, absolutely. Is correct. <laughs> and honestly, <laughs> if you have not seen the autobiography of Miss Jane Pittman, it is on HBO Max. And once again, we do not receive any money from HBO Max. So, no, but no. if you want to sponsor us, we are available. We are they should pay you. Yeah, we, Some, absolutely. Please. Uh, Chels, before we move ahead, I wanted to ask you, you know, what is, do you have a favorite, uh, Cicely Tyson movie or a memory that you really, um, uh, love? So I do have a good memory. Um, a few years ago, I got to go to the creative arts Emmys with a friend of mine and they dragged out Cicely Tyson. And to this day, my friend Shannon, happy birthday, Shannon. Um, <laughs> basically they dragged her out and she looked so annoyed with everybody and she just gave people dirty looks around her. And Amazing. I'm like, that's who I want to be when I'm older. Just like Absolutely. somebody that gets a standing ovation and just can give withering looks. That's who I want to be. Absolutely. Yeah. She I was amazing. That. 
I love her. Yeah. It's hard to pick just one. So I'm glad that you got a good little range there. Yeah. Um, I feel like if anyone could be just dragged out and give looks, it's like, yeah, she fucking deserves it and can do it. Yeah. <laughs> we, we applaud you, Mrs. Lee Tyson. Um, Rest yes. in power, please. Because yes. I, I still cannot believe that that, you know, ugh, it was just yeah. like it was in the zeitgeist, I guess. But I know it's so weird because we try to be timely often we can't especially now with movies just coming out whenever yeah. um and we very accidentally were the most timely with the cicely tyson episode um and i was thinking about it, i was like man it sounds like we were being so opportunistic there but like we really didn't plan that at all no no not at all there's there's a lot of forethought that goes into this and so yeah and just yeah I, it, it's all just weird kismet um but yeah but you know for real i'm um, i'm I'm happy that we got a chance to experience her films. And yes, and... yes. And thank you um, uh, to our listener who gave us the idea to do um, Cicely Tyson. So listeners out there, hit us up. Absolutely. Uh, you can always email us at reviewsmixed at gmail.com. Before we move in to our current subject, which is why Chels has been invited here, we do have one new review on Apple Podcasts. And this is a review from Ireland, which is pretty damn cool. Uh, the title is My Go-To Movie Podcast, five stars. Gavin and Louie managed to take a forensic and vast amount of info in an episode and make it interesting, funny, often surprising, and informative. Can't get enough of these two. A real highlight in my podcast list. There's no BS or gimmicks, just two funny guys passionately diving into topics, and they clearly want to bring you along. Whole lot of fun. So thank you very Aww. much. That's from Fitzgerald P. in Ireland. Fitzgerald I mean, P. no lies detected. I love the, the forensic aspect of that. We are CSI movie gals. Oh, absolutely. Um, that, that's the alternative. <laughs> not that not to steal your title. brand. Not to steal no, your brand, Chels. You, you guys are the only men I acknowledge in the podcast world. Thank you are honorary gals to Thank me. Thank you. Uh, that means a lot. That means yeah, a lot. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, my God. Uh, um, okay, so, Chels, I'm going to let you do the honors. Why have you summoned us here to uh, to talk on today's um, or this week's episode. Who are we covering? So we're covering the one and only Audrey Hepburn. And oh, I know. And yeah. I thought this would be kind of a fun one because she has a contained filmography, but also yep. she's a very misunderstood person in society. People see her as a fashion icon. Right. And like from the time I was little, I like watched Breakfast at Tiffany's and was like trying to understand why, because I was just a curious <laughs> child about why is this person famous? Uh -huh, mm -hmm. What is their point? And I just did a bunch of deep dive Wikipedia searches and then found a bunch of books. And I'm like, oh, this is a very complicated person that society has not remembered well. Right. They remember the cute things, but there's a lot of other stuff that she's done, and she's done some great humanitarian work. Yeah. And it's a pretty heartbreaking story. So I just want to do her some justice. I love that. It's funny that you, when you say people remember her, because truly now, like in the worst possible sense, like she is the icon that you see at the TJ Maxx, like paintings. Yeah section you know or like oh yeah my mom literally got me like tj maxx like passport holder with audrey hepburn yeah. on him i still have it like luggage tag and yeah. i was like what what is the point of this so it sounds like you've audrey's been a part of your life for a long while it's funny because i think maybe i knew who she was not until like high school and even then i hadn't seen any of her movies i i, I really think 
um, when we did our Cary Grant episode, Gavin was the first time I really had seen a full movie of her in it. And that was for Charade, which was my five star review. Um, and so I was really happy, uh, Chels, that you suggested this because I was like, oh, finally, like I now have uh, a reason to go through um, because she is iconic and, and for, for better or worse, you know, I think you're right. She is iconic mostly for her looks and these yeah. very stylish movies that people kind of like we know. Uh, you know, Breakfast at Tiffany's or My Fair Lady and things like that, that have kind of stayed in the American canon of uh, Hollywood and, you know, uh, musical theater. But it really diving in and being like, oh, what is an Audrey Hepburn movie without all the style? Like going into these movies where it's like not about the way she looks was very um, rewarding and interesting to be like, oh, this wasn't just a woman who looked a certain way. She was kind of fucking amazing she was a really yeah. good actress well it's it's funny too and i think i think you really hit on it when you said when you said the word cute and i think a lot of people do as you were just saying too louis that it just it is a lot of in in the american zeitgeist it's a lot of style over substance and she is considered hollywood royalty i think she was voted like the third most popular uh female celebrity ever in in like the united states a couple of years ago and it's it's really interesting to go back through and and look at her trajectory because she was sort of an actor as a means to an end. She wanted to be a dancer, and mm-hmm. she was too she was quote unquote too tall for it at the time. Um, modern dance wasn't really a thing, and you can kind of be any height for modern dance. And you know she she transitioned from these stage shows into film, and she had no formal training in terms of acting right because right. of this she she never thought of herself as a great actor <laughs> she never thought of herself as a great beauty and i think these are really interesting things because clearly she is both she would not be remembered the way that she is right. if she wasn't and it's and it's not so much just you know famous pairings with other actors or famous pairings with you know costume designers like you know Givenchy and and stuff like that Mm -hmm. those helped those have kept her sort of fresh in our minds but I I agree I think that she's a lot more talented and a lot stronger than people give her credit for and with a much bigger heart I think people have a very two-dimensional view of who Audrey Hepburn was and what she was capable of and I think when she was alive, she was sort of constantly proving people wrong. Unfortunately, that's not necessarily the way that she's remembered. Yeah. She wanted to be a dancer, singer, actor. Unfortunately, <laughs> she was an actor, singer, dancer. It's hard. It's hard. But I think that puts us in a really good position. So why don't we move into our rewind and learn a bit more about the history of Miss Audrey Hepburn? Audrey Kathleen Rustin was born May 4th, 1929. She was born in Ixels, Brussels, which is in Belgium. Her mother was a baroness, Ella van Hemstra. She was a Dutch noblewoman, but uh, the way titles are done in the Netherlands is sort of like, it's a fun thing. It doesn't mean a lot. It really didn't. A hundred years before, they would have had money, but then they were like working class. Absolutely. So everybody class baroness? Yeah, mm-hmm. I, everybody Great. was getting a title back then. It was like, you get a title, you get a wow. title. Oprah was just handing them out. Um, <laughs> her father, Joseph Victor Anthony Rustin, was a British subject who was born in uh, 
the Austro-Hungarian Empire in Bohemia. And he, the best way to put it was like, he was a man of means, but he was a bit like a trumped up sort of individual. He often claimed that, you know, he had aristocratic roots through uh, James Hepburn, who was the husband of Mary, Queen of Scots. This was not true. Uh, and he was somebody who like wanted to live above his means. He wasn't, mm. um, you know, he after he married Audrey Hepburn's mother, he would often label himself as uh, the, you know, a double barreled last name as Hepburn Rustin because it made himself sound more grand. And the thing is, is like he thought in marrying a baroness like the the title would sort of. And it doesn't doesn't work that way, <laughs> you know. It, it doesn't like go over to him, so he wasn't a baron. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. So they marry in Batavia in the Dutch East Indies. Uh, at the time, he was working at a trading company, um, and then they sort of started moving all around Europe. He began working for a loan company. They live in London. They end up in Brussels, where he's assigned to open a branch office. I should mention, by the way, Audrey has two older half brothers. They come from her mother's previous marriage. You're going to hear a little bit more about them so that's why the only reason i'm bringing them up and essentially she's living kind of a life of means you know she they're not poor off and she's learning six languages casual yeah just normal for uh dutch (laughs) english french german spanish and italian and it's not an easy childhood uh her father is distant and her mother is um cold is the best way to put it she teaches her the two big important lessons that she takes to her career for the rest of her life which is that you should never make yourself the center of attention Hmm. and everybody else is more important than you are everybody else everybody else is Mm -hmm. like um emotions and means and they're and obviously Audrey doesn't Audrey is not like crushed by these she she makes them into things that she can work with you know it's she like ends- a humbling childhood perhaps yeah. mm-hmm. very um, very much not like a reach for the stars honey but it's like <laughs> help everyone else and get their stars fuck you yeah. and your stars exactly <laughs> in the mid 1930s both of her parents were recruited mm-hmm. and they started collecting donations for the British Union of Fascists which is exactly what it sounds like it was um, called that yeah. Oh, yep. yeah. Uh, not she, thought at all. <laughs> she, uh, her mother began writing op-eds, pro-Nazi op-eds. Uh, there has been some doubt about whether her mother actually wrote these or if her father penned them and used her mother's name because she had a title. And so it would sound more um, more regal, I suppose, <laughs> you know. A regal uh, Nazi. <laughs> um, and then in 35, Joseph, her father leaves he like goes to england and joins the black shirts which is their fascist party jesus audrey hepburn says this is the most dramatic moment of her life her father leaving the family what is the thing that that crushed her as a child and and led to self-esteem issues for Mm. her entire life my father leaving us left me insecure for life perhaps i do think there are things that you know that experiences in childhood form you for the rest of your life That's also why I'm so concerned with children today, not just that they're starving and so forth, but children that are surrounded by violence and horror, what this is going to do to them. Her mother decides to send Audrey to England to get her education. It's what Joseph wanted. And funny enough, he ends up working two or three blocks away from her school and tells her he'll come visit her and never once does. 
What the fuck? Oh yeah, after the divorce, he had visitation rights, and mm-hmm. he only used it a couple times, what give the or take. Fuck? Yeah, this guy, <laughs> and it's like the sense that like he's just really busy being a fascist. Like, and you know, it takes him a lot of time. Mom's not better. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's the thing. That's the funny thing, right? Is you would think like the it'd be like, but then she had this really loving mother. Mother. Nope. Wow. Very withholding woman would always drop drop the kids off with grandma and grandpa and said she was a citizen of the world. Everything that I've read, every like lead that I've had about her father says that he was the one who cared more about the title and more more about being fancy. But I definitely get the impression that her mother was a v- very similar in that fashion. Maybe not outwardly so, maybe not constantly being like, I'm a baroness. But like, <laughs> I think that she wanted to live in, in a very fancy way that she just never grew accustomed to not having so it seems Mm -hmm. like audrey hepburn like and correct me if i'm wrong like had like this very classical upbringing of like you know pampered little pretty girl who has everything except fully like a a a a support system yeah family well it's pretty much it's only gonna get worse before it gets better so yeah buckle up (laughs) britain declares war on germany in september 1939 um and her mother is like, well, I don't think you're safe in England, so you got to come back to Arnhem. And she was like, you know what? First World War, Netherlands was great. Nobody touched it. It'll be fine. Uh, Hepburn starts attending the Arnhem Conservatory, even though she doesn't really speak Dutch. So it's real, like, <laughs> catch up quick. And um, she- yeah, they threw her into the school and they're like, oh, you got to learn this. Also, we're going to change your name to Etta because you sound too British right now. Yes, absolutely. So they were like, after they were school, like, she would teach herself Dutch. Yeah, they were like British American names. No, thank you. We do not want the Nazis Etta? coming for you. Her name was so they called her Etta. Etta Van Hemstra. Yep. <laughs> but I was shoved into a Dutch school right away, not knowing a word of Dutch because my mother was worried about this child speaking English in the streets and Germans all around and she thought that was rather dangerous so that was a traumatic experience to end up in a huge classroom not knowing what word that was being said and every time I opened my mouth everybody roaring with laughter that's just great at that age is she dancing by now is she like yes so okay so she was taking ballet classes in London uh when she comes back she still continues to take ballet classes in the Netherlands but um the Germans invade the Netherlands in 1940 and she has says, you know, th- this is the other big defining moment of her childhood, because essentially she is pretty sure had they thought the German occupation was going to last more than six months, um, her mother would have shot the children and shot herself. Jesus. Oh, mm-hmm. my God. But it ends up lasting for five years. How uh, old is she when this starts? About 10. Yeah, about 10 or 11. Yeah, yeah. Oh, my God. So during this time, she knows right from wrong. Her brothers know right from wrong. And so they decide to start helping out in any way that they think that they can. She starts doing underground concerts to help raise money for the resistance because the resistance always needed money. She claims that she didn't do this very often, that this only happened a couple times, but uh, she would carry notes inside her shoes for resistance members. Some stories have been exaggerated about my contribution of bringing around messages occasionally because there was nobody else to do it you know but i did that a couple of times i was really too young one brother ends up being put into a nazi work camp for his work with resistance her other brother goes into hiding for fear of the same thing happening to him as the war goes on and germany starts to lose and they're losing their focus on everybody 
as a means of punishment, they start to starve the Dutch people. Jesus. And, and so rations dry up and food dries up and Audrey and her family begin to starve. During this time, her uncle Otto, who was a magistrate at the time, he's put into a prison. And then as an example, him and five other Dutchmen are executed as just like an example because other Dutch resistance fighters messed up a train. So they're executed. One of the real big war crimes in the Netherlands at the time. There was a knock on the door and they took my uncle away who six months later was shot and another uncle too. And my brothers went underground my uncles were the first hostages to be shot in Holland, and it was actually the turning point because from that day on, an underground was formed. That's when really the hard time started because that's when so many reprisals were made and so many people were shot and so many people were rounded up and imprisoned. And, and uh, after the first few months, all Jews had to, be, had to wear yellow stars, and they started being rounded up and taken away in trucks. And... I'd go to the station with my mother to, to take a train to the next city, and I'd see cattle trucks filled with Jews, picking up more who were standing around us. And I remember so well a little boy, little blonde, my mother to explain all this to me. We did yet, then not yet know that they were going to their death. We'd been told they were going to be taken to special camps. And uh, why, it was very hard for me to understand because I was 11 or something, you know. But those images have never, never left me. By this point, mom's been kind of like, okay, I see these Nazis aren't that great. They're doing some <laughs> bad things. I'm a little hungry right now. Right, okay, yeah. good. You said this lasted for five years. So yeah. like, so Zoom mm -hmm. had to, she's 15 now and the family's starving. Yes, and, and they're, they're resorting to making you know, flour out of tulips to bake cakes and biscuits. She ends up developing acute anemia, um, respiratory problems, and edema. And these are all results of malnutrition. Wow. Um, eventually, the war ends, as history tells us, in 45. <laughs> uh, there's a very famous story that uh, on, on the day that the soldiers rolled into town, one of them gave her a chocolate bar and she ate it so fast she instantly became sick. And her mother moves her and her siblings. By the way, her brother that was in the war in the work camp, uh, they assumed were was dead. He walks back from Germany. Jesus. It's yeah. about 300 miles. Yeah. Oh. yeah. Uh the family then moves to Amsterdam. She continues her ballet training or starts it up again. However, the the um, being emaciated the this does horrors to the human yeah, body absolutely and she just never recovers her sort of innate ability for ballet she still dances a lot and she still does beautiful ballet but it's just never it's not what like a professional level like exactly you know, world and class. it just <clears throat> and it just will never be because of what she suffered during the war. I can't even um, imagine, you know, like if you're a 10 year old and, you know, going through your teen, teenage years in war and then coming out of that, like that's puberty, right? You're going through right. puberty during war and then coming of age to a young adult. And finally, like the world is exhaling, breathing and like, what the fuck do you even do next? You know, like everything probably feels so silly, so dumb. Like, so like if she's this, happy to have food to eat, you know, like to want anything else seems a little bit, I don't know, uh, must have been awful. But I think it also like puts a, an odd sort of bit in your brain that says, well, now I have the ability to go for these things and like I've experienced the bad. 
So mm-hmm. like what's wor- like what's a rejection to me? What's right. somebody telling me I can't do something when like I literally years, survived war? <laughs> yeah, two years ago I was a skeleton and I thought I was gonna die every day. And uh, so I I think it also like gives a very sort of like carefree but also focused work attitude on her because she's just like, well, I got to make it happen now because who knows when I'm going to go and what's going to happen. Yeah, true. um, She she does, even though they're unsure how far she's going to go as a ballerina, she does receive a scholarship to a ballet school in England. And uh, it's there that they tell her, like, Prima Ballerina's out, babe. It's not Mm going to happen. Um, And... Her mother starts working like at restaurants to try and support them. And Audrey starts going on acting gigs, modeling gigs. She appears in a tourism film. Uh, and then she lands a job as a dancer in high button shoes in the London Hippodrome, which is a big deal. But she's not super popular amongst the rest of the dancer cast because they're like, she's not as good. She's awkward and gangly. And Anytime she's on stage, everybody's looking at her and not the rest of us. Gag. <laughs> yeah. And I just think it's really funny that they're like, oh, ugly, bad, but also nobody could take their eyes off her. <laughs> she's uh. disgusting. She's stupid. And they're obsessed. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, after that, she lands a job in Cecil Landu's Sauce Tatar and his sequel, Sauce Picante. And she lands a featured role in one of them just because of that very same reason we're just saying, like, she stole focus when she was on stage people just wanted to look at her Mm. it didn't matter how good she was right it was just the spotlight was her a casting director sees her in sauce picante and is like you should really get into acting um and she starts small she does a bbc television play um she appears in one wild oat laughter in paradise young wives tale which is maybe the largest role at this point and lavender hill mob and really it's not until uh thorold dickinson's the secret people in 52 uh that she gets like a leading role she's a secondary lead in this film she learns so much from her co-stars just how to like negotiate with the press her personal and public life what they get to know and she made some really good friendships there and like just literally learned how to act on that film compared to everything else the farthest we've gone back on this show was maybe doing joan crawford and we sort of explained the impossible beauty standards of the time period during that era but i don't think we ever touched on the fact that like actors didn't really have publicists back then they might have had (laughs) agents but they didn't have a person who was like here's everything we're gonna you know here's how you're gonna shoot my client here's what you're gonna get and Audrey Hepburn sort of had to do that for herself and it's something that really carries over into her full career Audrey Hepburn never let like the paparazzi take photos of her filming it was always photos she approved by the actual photo department Wow. Uh, she would constantly tell cameramen how to light her. And, and like this, these are not pushy things. Let me tell you, if your career is how you look. Yeah. These are things you have to know. And there's a surprising number of very famous people who do not know this stuff. Cary Grant was very much another type of this person. We're going to get, I know this is jumping far ahead, but when they do charade, he, he like charade was his third to last film. And he was like, yeah, I learned a lot from working with Audrey Hepburn in the way that like her relationship with the press. So, but way before that, after 
appearing in the Lavender Hill Mob, she, you know, she gets a small role in a film being shot both in English and French because she can speak both languages. She's one of the only cast members who plays the same role in both versions. And this mm-hmm. is a film called Monte Carlo Baby. Uh, it was actually being filmed in Monte Carlo. Hello? Hello, mademoiselle? Uh, mademoiselle, donnez-moi le 123 au business, s'il vous plaît. At the hotel where they're filming it happens to be French novelist Colette. And Colette is in the process of looking for somebody to play her character, Gigi, in the Broadway production of the play, Gigi. And she sees Audrey Hepburn, and she's like, that's it. And it's really one of those brilliant, like, she was working, she was doing the work, but had this occurrence not occurred? Right. Who knows what would have happened? She ends up going to Broadway in this lead role, um, she goes into rehearsals having never spoken any lines on stage because even in Sauce Picante, she, she was like a featured dancer, but like these were actual lines. Mm-hmm. Oh, um, yeah. She had like one line before and one tiny little off thing. And it's like, oh, she was nervous every single time. <laughs> and that's another thing that keeps through her entire career. She is always nervous on stage and in front of the camera and it never shows. But I do think that's a really interesting thing that she stayed nervous. And the play opens, and critics don't really care for it, but they love her. And that's really the thing that sells her, is it's just like, well, she's she's arrived. Yeah. Yeah. William Wyler, who we talked about in our Olivia de Havilland episode because he directed The Heiress, Mm -hmm. is looking for a fresh young face to star in his new movie, Roman Holiday, which would be played across from Gregory Peck's leading man. And he hears of Audrey Hepburn. He's like, give her a screen test. William Wyler came to London looking for an unknown. And I was fully qualified. (laughs) (laughs) And I was tested among, you know, several hundreds of others. And somehow got that part. They put her in front of a camera, but he instructs them, leave the camera on after she thinks she's done and interview her. Stuff. And... It's a very smart thing because she lets down all of her pretenses and she just turns into, I think, the Audrey Hepburn that most people know. She's incredibly charming. She's very disarming. The screen test gets sent to William Wyler and he's like, that's the girl. Didn't know how long the war was going to last, so I went to a ballet school and learned to dance. And in about 1944, about a year before the end of the war, I was quite capable of performing. That was a sort of some way in which I could make some contribution. And I did give performances to collect money for the underground, which always needed money. What about the Germans? What did they do about it? There's no about it. And so in 1953, she stars. It's her first movie. This is her only audition for a major movie much like very much like eddie murphy one audition yeah yeah and and she's the lead in a major hollywood picture yeah so roman Roman holiday is like the arrival yeah absolutely and and, and like it's hard to uh there are hardly uh, i can't think of that many other like arrivals that are just like boom gal you're a star and like immediately to the a-list top of everything um what do we think about robin holiday gals 
she's literally playing a princess right in her first outing literally all i was thinking i was like i have not seen these movies but i was like is this the old school version of the princess switch it literally is the old school version of that um because it's basically like you know comedy of like identity and um tricks being played also the original how to lose a guy in 10 days journalism awry and like sneaky sneak um you've already forgot one of the major ones is the original chasing liberty uh, with many yes, more yes even down to the haircut even down to like oh, she yeah. gets a haircut to disguise herself and whatnot yeah and gregory peck is very handsome in this he's very handsome and he has such good chemistry with her and let me tell you there's some oldies that they put her up against in the yes. in her oh career my goodness. <laughs> there not. are his chemistry with her is pretty great yeah and i think the scene that like really i mean the ending when I mean, what I love about this movie is it's like there's not like really the happy ending or whatever. It's kind of right. like this wonderful thing happened. She got to like breathe and she has found a way to be a princess, but still like be who she wants to be and not just fucking placate everyone. And so when they ask her about like what has been your favorite place to visit and she says, yeah, it's been here in Rome. Fuck everywhere else. <laughs> which is which is also funny because most of the Italians think she's been sick in bed for the entire time. She plays a princess and she's sort of tired of her duty, so she sneaks off one day and she gets they drunk. They roofie her. Yeah. She, she does not get drunk. She they doesn't roofie get drunk. her. <laughs> You're right. Because she's like restless and can't go to bed and they're like, here, take these pills. Gregory Peck, who's a reporter, finds her and realizes what a great story it would be to to, you know, record this princess out and about. A great note is he finds her whenever she's passed out on a bench and any other film would have made that horrible and creepy. And yes. he is the most respectful gentleman, like yes. wants to get her home, but doesn't know where to take her. So he just takes her to his like hotel, wherever he's staying and just lets her sleep. Is very respectful. So yes. He, he also the couch, like, the bed, takes he care fully, of her. He fully doesn't want to though. He's fully like, okay, like go home now. <laughs> and she's, and she's like, I don't get it. <laughs> like, but yeah, there's there's zero percent creep factor there, which is um, it shouldn't be hard to do, but and yet somehow lots of movies just don't know how to somehow do somehow in the fifties they nailed it. <laughs> they nailed it. Would you be so kind as to tell me where I am? Well, this is what is laughingly known as my apartment. Did you bring me here by force? No, no, no. Quite the contrary. Have I been here all night alone? If you don't count me, yes. So I've spent the night here with you. Oh, well, now, I, I don't know that I'd use those words exactly. But uh, from a certain angle, yes. And honestly, this isn't a Gregory Peck episode, but I do want to just take a side step to say everybody who ever worked with Gregory Peck said that he was an utmost gentleman and he oh. was always very responsive to his co-stars and he was always very cool about advancing their careers or trying to advance their careers. Now, there is a fun sort of apocrypha story where it says that he was like, you know, she's really the star of this movie and only my name is going above the of the title. So why don't we try and get her name above the title? That's not how it happened. <laughs> how it happened was actually William Wyler was like, this is her movie. And Gregory Peck's is the only name above the title, but really it should be both their names. And he calls Gregory Peck's agent and Gregory Peck's agent is like, oh, well, then you have to ask Gregory. 
because it's in his contract. And then mm-hmm. William Wyler does, and Gregory's cool about it. But I, but I like the idea that Gregory's going around, Mister yes, Peck's same. going around, being like, "Oh yeah, Audrey Hepburn, I made her." That's <laughs> not quite. Um, not quite. But he can have the credit. We'll give him this little thing. Ex- I love Gregory Peck. <laughs> oh, I do too. He's so good, and He's so handsome. Uh, that role was supposed to be Cary Grant, but Cary Grant felt he was too old for it, which so. is hilarious because then I know because literally, lol. We'll yeah, like a decade later. Um yeah. I really I really like Roman Holiday. I think it really holds up. I hadn't seen it in a very long time and then I rewatched it for this. I think it's cute in all the right ways, but I think it's also heavy in the right spots mm-hmm. as well too, um which is a hard balancing act especially for a a 50s film, but I think the the advantage is that you have a pro like Wyler behind the camera mm-hmm. who's really sort of guiding it to making it not because it could easily go too silly i'm always for some reason in my brain is always like when eddie albert shows up i'm like oh he's gonna be over the top but not only is he not over the top when eddie albert showed up i was like is eddie albert also incredibly handsome so yeah oh yeah (laughs) he is so handsome it just takes me aback as a queer woman i'm like huh okay (laughs) that's what i was i was like i always understood gregory peck and then i'm like wait eddie albert (laughs) um Wait, should they kiss or? <laughs> yeah, yes. exactly. Should should Hepburn leave them alone? Right. <laughs> um, no, I completely adore this film. Everything just works for me. I'm such a sucker for it. It's got the bittersweet ending that I love in a film, yeah. so yeah. it works. Doesn't she like win a bunch of awards for this? Just a few. Just a tiny, tiny smattering. Completely unexpected to her wins the Academy Award for Best Actress. She gets a BAFTA Award for Best British Act- Actress in a Leading Role. And she gets the Golden Globe Award for Best Actress in Motion Picture Drama in 1953. So uh, certainly not hurting. And honestly, if any any of you have seen her acceptance speech, mm-hmm. it's maybe my favorite thing. Because she looks, she looks like she's going to have a panic attack. Mm-hmm. And the first thing barely out over the music she says is it's too much. It's too much. Mm-hmm. 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 It's just so humble. It's funny because like, you know, her career just like the mid fifties just like exploded. Like she is mm-hmm. like, we're automatically into the meat of her career, you know? Uh, yeah. There's, for- there's no ramping up. No. It, like <laughs> it's literally like if you were watching a rocket launch and they were like on the count of 10, 10, yeah. one. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> that's yeah that's exactly. Um, oh yeah. She is so, so busy during this time. Like she finishes filming Roman holiday, does a Broadway tour of Gigi and then just like goes into a next film. Absolutely. Yeah. And the next film is Billy Wilder's Sabrina, which I think is a little hurt by the fact that it comes immediately after Roman holiday mm-hmm. because it's essentially another Cinderella story, but told in a much more conventional way where she's the daughter of a chauffeur of a very wealthy family. She goes away to French cooking school. She comes back and she's, you know, she's uh, fashion now. Yeah, exactly. She's dressed. She's draped in Givenchy. I, I do want to tell the story of Givenchy, by the way. So she does uh Roman holiday. Edith head does all her costumes. It's her big success. Everybody's like, she's a fashion plate. Huge success, by the way, in Japan, like Roman holiday is a success in America, but it's even bigger in Russia and Japan for some reason sparks a <laughs> whole craze in Japan about dressing and looking like Audrey Hepburn to this day. There are entire mangas about her character in roman holiday whoa yeah she's a big hit in japan when people say big in japan they're talking about audrey hepburn (laughs) 
And actually, it caused a bit of a furor, especially in Japan, where the, where the film was an enormous success, still is today. Because there, all girls had very long hair, and it was part of the tradition, and they all cut off their hair. And I was, I was uh, held responsible. She basically is given a budget and told to for this movie to go to France, buy her own sets of costumes, uh, so they can like ship them back with her, and then the studio doesn't have to pay shipping fees, and then the studio will reimburse her. It's this weird little scheme, but <laughs> um, she sees um, this small shop by Givenchy. And she goes in for an appointment and he's all excited because Catherine Hepburn is there to see him. And he goes in and no, well, that's that's he goes in and it's not Catherine. (sighs) (laughs) It's Audrey. And he's like, oh, who the fuck are you? Yeah, great. Um, But she instantly wins him over with her charm and her wit. And they become lifelong collaborators. He says she's the best person to ever wear clothing. Uh, You could put anything on her. She knows all of her lines, all of her angles. She just makes everything look so natural. Uh, She buys essentially all of her costumes for Sabrina, comes back with them. Uh, Edith Head wins the Academy Award for costuming. Oh yeah, they couldn't credit him. Nope, they did not credit him. She got to keep her costumes from Roman Holiday. She did. She requested that. Um, Which is such a, such a, I don't know, flex. Yeah, that's a power <laughs> move. But anyways, so she comes back uh, and she's in love with this younger brother played by William Holden. Um, there's an older brother played by Humphrey Bogart who falls in love with her. It's creepy because he's twice her age. Yes, yes. He's also a nightmare human being to work with. On the other hand, William Holden and Audrey Hepburn start having an illicit affair. Love that and, for them. Yeah, good for them. And she really thinks this is the one. Like, Aww. I got this mm-hmm. so early in my life. So she thinks William Holden's the one. You know, he he has some issues. He's married. But really the straw that breaks the camel's back is she's like, also, I want to have a ton of kids. I love oh, yeah. kids. Yeah. And he's like, I had a vasectomy. So, Goodbye. Yeah. And, well, that's literally it. She's like... Literally hit the brakes like, oh, immediately. Yeah. Boom. No. She, she's like, and this is my friend, William Holden. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so, uh, and, you know, the, the film comes out, it gets her a nomination for Best Actress. It's nah. not as big as Roman Holiday. I um, can break your heart a little more. Cary Grant was supposed to play the Humphrey Bogart part, but declined that. Too. Oh my yeah, God. Again, again, he's like, I'm too old. Actually, the rumor is that he didn't want to have to carry an umbrella because there's a scene in which uh, Humphrey Bogart carries an umbrella. But we did an entire Cary Grant episode, and that man did not take himself that seriously. Right. Like, no. I, don't, like I don't think he'd be like, it's unmanly to hold an umbrella. Um, no. In his weird. He's a silly man. No. Yeah, exactly. yeah, exactly. In 54, she decides to play. Um, a water nymph on Broadway in the play Undine. She does this with Mel Ferrer. Gregory Peck set them up because Mel's like came from a very rich family, was like childhood friends with Gregory Peck. And so Gregory Peck pretty much set them up essentially because he's like, oh, I think you guys would get along. If you want Gregory, 
<laughs> if you want to watch I a know. really bad version of her life story, the Jennifer Love Hewitt TV movie <gasps> is on YouTube. Stop. Oh, it's oh, so good. bad. It's free. Um, yeah, it's <laughs> absolutely for free. And Mel Ferrer is played by Will from Will and Grace. So uh, stop. <laughs> that does not make any no, sense. No, it is the, maybe the worst casting I've ever seen, which is funny. Because Mel's at least like generically hot handsome yeah and like but also like a little swarthy and i don't think yeah. eric mccormick is no swarthy i think he's no. pale white <laughs> like that's, yeah they're you know a budding relationship a couple and they're like we should work together on this play they go to do this play she gets great marks mel ferrer on the other hand gets terrible like people are like he's literally trying to steal scenes he's pretending to be jerry lewis he's picking up and acting the fool and nobody likes it um but that doesn't deter the romantic relationship because on september 25th of that year 1954 they get married Mm -hmm. so it's just kind of a whirlwind romance 55 she she doesn't do any films and the only reason i'm bringing that up which i think is funny um because she ends up receiving a Golden Globe for World Film Favorite of the Year. <laughs> that it's year. like she did nothing, and they're like, "We we love you." Yeah, we You're love our you. Favorite. <laughs> they're still watching Roman Holiday at exactly. this point. Yeah, they're like yeah, yeah, reruns. <laughs> the next thing she does is she does War and Peace in '56, which is um, the King Vidor big Hollywood adaptation of the Tolstoy novel. It's long. Yeah. So pretty much King Vidor, he was like trying to make this film, but he also had a really controlling producer saying you have to cast like famous, famous people, A-listers, because he wanted like Paul Schofield, like a little bit more traditional actors, Peter Ustinov. That's who he wanted. I fucking love Peter Ustinov. No, (laughs) we're going to make you hire a Fonda and you got to do Mel Ferrer. Basically, they hired Audrey and they're like, oh, you need to do Mel too. And King Vidor just did not like the men that he cast in the lead roles but he's like at least audrey understood what was going on he was a big fan of audrey nobody else he was not very into it does it change her career that much no a very cute thing though she did present king vidor his honorary oscar much later on so that's true people love her she lands the lead role in funny face opposite fred astaire uh, that's 57. She gets to show off her dancing ability. She actually gets to sing on camera, which is something she won't really get to do again. Um, just one more time. Gavin, <laughs> and- do you believe in like um, empathicalism, Gavin? I just wanted to ask you really quick. <laughs> I Clearly, was- I don't. <laughs> no, because <laughs> you're hateful. Literally watching this movie, I was like, they were just making shit up, huh? The movie's cute. I get, you know, like if you yeah. can't think too hard about it, it's cute. Her dancing, that dancing scene is like, didn't they you literally use that for a gap commercial? Yes. Oh, for sure. Yeah. It's style, honey. Fred Astaire, great, charming, whatever. I I find them really uncomfortable together. I do no, not yeah. see romance yeah. for them. She said she always wanted to dance with him and that's why she liked it, but also he is way too old to yeah. be way her love too interest. Old. It's yeah. Kay Thompson is great. I did yes. love her. She yeah. is a hoot. That uh, that, that, that movie is campy camp camp camp. <laughs> it is so silly. I feel like I just made that movie up in my like, yeah. fever dreams. Where I come from, the man asks the girl to dance. Oh, you must come from the Stone Age. We think freely here. The girl wants to dance with the man, she asks him. We're not inhibited by outmoded social conventions. I can see that. Do you ask men to dance with you? 
isn't it time you realize that dancing is nothing more than a form of expression or release? There's no need to be formal or cute about it. Speaking of way too old, uh, her next film is <sighs> Love in the Afternoon, starring alongside Gary Cooper and Maurice Chevalier. And uh, I'm terrible at pronouncing things, so let's say that that's close enough. It's another <laughs> Billy it. Wilder film. Uh, it's awful. It's truly awful. Uh, she plays the daughter of a detective uh, who basically his main job when he's in Par- Paris is to hunt down the women Gary Cooper has been sleeping with. Um, and she falls in love with Gary Cooper. And then he goes away for a year and he comes back and they, you know, she pretends to be this very sexually experienced person. And then he gets jealous and th- then that's essentially what gets them together. It's garbage. It's very like men oriented. <laughs> um, on top of that, Gary Cooper is more than twice her age at the time. Looks like he's three times her age. The reviews of him being old affected him so much that he had a facelift after this movie <sighs> and it didn't take. And he looked Stop! exactly the same. Yeah. What, you, what happens when your facelift doesn't take? Oh my you God. You just look exactly the same. Like the newspaper reports were like Gary Cooper went to have plastic surgery to look more like Gary Cooper. Jeez. I'm like <laughs> um, Googling to look I at I feel him. like if there was a few more rewrites yeah. and if it was like Rock Hudson or Peter Finch, someone it, just slightly older. That's really like, who it had to be because she goes like on. Someone to, hot and yeah. old, slightly older, not a thousand years older. It would have been a good movie. There are like. And there's fun, it's such yeah. a missed opportunity. Like Billy Wilder, come on, man. I love the like quartet of musicians that follow him around. I think there's some brilliant touches in the film. And I will say, for anybody who thinks Audrey Hepburn is not an actor, that she's just a pretty face, watch the scene where she recognizes him at the opera and he doesn't recognize her. And the pain in her fucking face of being like, I look amazing. And this man, this fucking asshole, doesn't recognize me. It's heartbreaking in a comedy. I was mm. like, oh, <laughs> like my heart broke for her. No, um, she is so good in this film that. Uh. Yeah, but it's just this old man pawing at this young girl. It doesn't help it's that so she creepy. also looks 14. Like she's yeah. like eternally 14. She's for... so young in this. She's only like 28 when it comes out. Yeah. Something like that. The next three films are kind of not fully remembered of her. They round out the end of her 50s period. Um, I'd say that there's one that's pretty good in there and the other two are big flops, but she does the nun story next uh, in 59. It's basically a, 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 a sort of nurse's struggle with her faith because she wants to go to the Congo and help people out as a as a missionary nun slash nurse. Her father was a surgeon and she goes there and she just can't keep up with the like rigors of you have to stop and pray every you know, every hour when the bells toll. Um, also, they're, the fact that they were completely neutral when the Nazis roll in um, because they're like, well, that has nothing to do with us. And she uh, like, essentially gives up her her religious calling in the end. I think this is, I, I am very against missionary work, I just want to say, mm-hmm. but I think this is a very beautiful film and I think she really put her heart and soul into playing this nun sister luke is her name um i think it's one of her finest screen performances but it is not an easy film i think primarily she was what we know as a perfectionist yeah in everything she did and 
although she was a perfect nurse, she herself never thought she was perfect enough as a nun. I see. And, and, and therefore was, I suppose you could say, honest enough mm. to acknowledge it. And, and anyway, she couldn't go on living that way. Um, in a way, you can call that an imperfection because one has to know that there is no such thing as perfection. You have to live with your own faults. These three movies that around this time, you know, it seems like she very much was trying to get away from the style and maybe yeah. fill her CV with some more substance. You know, I watched The Nun Story. I watched The Unforgiven. I tried to watch Green Mansions. That's what I'll give to Green Mansions. Um, <laughs> she literally finishes The Nun Story, flies to L.A., starts shooting a Green Mansions with her husband directing. Yep. It's super racist. And then she does The Unforgiven, and that's super racist. It's so yeah. crazy cakes. In The Unforgiven, when she, like, realizes that she's a Native American, and she, like, looks in the mirror and then, like, wipes, like, some fucking paint on her forehead. And I was like, what kind of hot topic, like, situ- <laughs> like people oh. had a, had emotions back then, right? Like, people knew how people acted, right? <laughs> and it, yeah. John Huston said that that was his least favorite film that yeah. he made. And it was during that time she like was rehearsing on a horse. She got <gasps> right off the horse. She broke her back, like broke several vertebrae. And then she had a miscarriage. Yeah. And, and they say that the most likely would not have had the miscarriage had she not been <laughs> thrown from the horse. And she fucking went and completed the film. After... She completed the film. Yeah. One cool thing about the nun story, she really bonded with the author of the source material and the real life person it was based on. Her name's Mary Louise Habits. And after she broke her back during the Unforgiven, Habits actually nursed her back to health oh, after that. So that. that was a, She's making friends everywhere she goes. And, yeah. and like you like you said, they're lifelong friends. But I do want to say, by the way, because history has a tendency to be like, you know, the woman that wrote the book and Mary Louise Habits then lived together for 40 years. But they were probably just friends. No one will ever know. What? Gal pals. <laughs> yeah, it's just wait like... <laughs> a second. Wait a second. So we're saying that this ex real life nun and this little curandera woman were actually like. Hmm. <laughs> Kissing? Yeah, I mean, maybe the world will never know because they are two consenting adults living together, but we can't make assumptions. That's so fucking punk rock, though. Like this woman who was like trying to be a nun, you know, gave it up just because of like the inner turmoil. And then she found out that she's like actually this badass lesbian and, you know, is supposedly, allegedly, allegedly living with this. I fucking hate that. Right. <laughs> it's okay. Nobody knows the, who owns the rights to the estate. That's why you can't find the book anywhere, really. Right. It's out of print. So oh my God. don't worry. <laughs> no one's coming for us. Sue you. <laughs> right. No one's coming. She does these three movies to kind of push herself away from, you know, what she's known for. And then, like, literally right after that, it's, like, right back to what probably is, like, the most iconic thing she's known for. Unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> absolutely 1961 comes around she gets cast in blake edwards adaptation of breakfast at tiffany's based on the truman capote novella truman capote's like i don't think she's right for the role um <laughs> no one would have been right for truman truman would have oh, well, been... tr- truman he literally wrote it for marilyn yeah, Monroe, he was like he where is where is marilyn Wow. Also, I've read that little novella. It's not very good. I own a copy. It's not good. Go off. Pop I was off. a curious teenager. No, it was bad. Um, 
I think everybody sort of knows what Breakfast in Tiffany is about, but just in case you don't, she is, well, she's supposedly a call girl. <laughs> the movie is very unclear on that point, mm-hmm. but she spends her nights with men. She then in the morning gets a little brekkie from a pharmacy and goes and stares out the windows of uh, Tiffany's her richer life. Um, she meets a writer who just really wants to save her from her life and that's but he's also a kept man yeah he is a kept man um and yeah it's racist Uh, super racist racist. oh my god i mean it's amazing that this movie is such in the zeitgeist but i will say that it mostly is because of her because of the givenchy outfit she wears and yeah uh, Yeah. but like the mickey rooney like (sighs) the thing to me is like that character like why does he even have to be Asian? There's literally nothing about the character the, that like the character doesn't even. Necessi- you could cut him out, and it yeah. would not yes. change. The yeah, film. yes. And like, I was gonna say, he doesn't even not have to be Asian. He doesn't have to exist. <laughs> like you, <laughs> yeah. you can get through that movie without him at all. Yeah, it's the talk about something that has just sailed on charm yeah. and cool and being pretty. Yeah, totally. OJ's a great agent. He knows a terrific lot of phone numbers. What's Jerry Wall's phone number, OJ? Oh, come on, lay off. Darling, man. I want you to call him and tell him what a genius Fred is. Yes, I got it. Stop blushing, Fred. You didn't say you were a genius. I did. So quit stalling, OJ. Just tell me what you're going to do to make Fred rich and famous. Now, why don't you let Fred baby me settle that matter, huh, puppy? Okay, but just remember, I'm the agent. She's already got a decorator. I'm the agent. I will say the other thing that that comes from that movie that I really like is Henry Mancini's Moon River. He purposely writes it in one key because she's not a strong singer and he wants her to be able to sing it. Um, And the myth is they go to a screen early screening of the movie and the execs, as soon as it ends, are like, well, you got to cut that fucking song. And she stands up and she's like, over my dead body. So... Which I would believe, because she was very, like, forceful yeah. with people during that time. She, like, knew what she wanted, and she knew when something was good, and people tended to listen to her. And honestly... I mean, she was the biggest fucking star in the world, absolutely. right? Absolutely. Like, it earned its Oscar. Oh, absolutely. Yes. She also gets nominated for Best Performance. She does not win. Um, in the same year, William Wyler's, like, I made this movie 30 years ago. Uh, wasn't allowed to make it about lesbians back then. I want to remake it. Uh, would you be interested in being one of my lesbian gal pals? And she's like, yes, absolutely. Um, so she makes The Children's Hour with William Wyler. It is a it is a much better film than these three, which is the <sighs> original. But I actually don't think these three is that bad. I've seen them both. Um, she stars opposite Shirley MacLaine. And essentially, it's this film about these two teachers who... Uh, a child begins telling lies about them having a sexual relationship with each other and it ruins their like it ruins their entire life i love this film yes yeah it's yes. so good little mary is <laughs> such a devilish child like electric chair Absolutely. yes straight fuera. she i couldn't lillian hellman wrote the play that's based yeah. on she also wrote um, the original these three the straight version of it for for the film <laughs> Right, and so she, I, I took an American Women in Literature course, and we watched this movie, and I was like fully shook about like how aggressive this play is, and how aggressive this little fucking tiny monster is, um, and uh, just uh, fully enters the canon of little white girls that are <laughs> devil women who <laughs> lie and lie, and uh, yeah, but but also this movie was so controversial, you couldn't say like. In the movie, they have such it's they stretch it out for such a long time about like what 
is the lie. And then finally they're like, we're lovers. They think we're lovers. <laughs> Literally a child whispering in like her grandma's yeah. ear or whatever. Yeah. Ever. Yeah. Not what's going and on. And the funny thing is, is Shirley MacLaine tried to like drop hints into her performance. He had to cut it because he was worried about like all the yeah. censors and audience. What was audience she doing? Like, she was, she was just, there were more scenes of her like longing and whatnot. And, uh-huh. um, <laughs> but the, the funny thing is, is, uh, she, you know, she sort of repraised that performance years ago i think in the celluloid closet and she said she she, you know she wishes they'd been more forceful about the issue and she she like can't believe the outcome of her character which i won't spoil for you here because i think it's really worth uh but i in a way disagree with her because i think it exactly reflects the mores of the time i think it fully is like this is how people reacted to this sort of thing in this period and it was gross and terrible but it's realistic Stop talking about it, Martha. Let's pack and get out of here. Let's take the train tomorrow. The train to where? I don't know. There must be some place we can go. I don't know where it is. They know about us. We've been famous. But this isn't a nuisance, they say. We've done other people haven't been destroyed by it. They're the people who believe in it. Who want it. Who've chosen it for themselves. We aren't like that. Next big film, 63's Charade. We brought up in a Cary Grant episode. It's essentially Audrey Hepburn doing her Hitchcock film. She was planning on working with Hitchcock at one point. He sent her a script and involved a woman getting strangled. She was like, no, ma'am. And, no, you. And so that's sort of... Just not for yeah, me. exactly. Yeah. She's like, <laughs> it's a no for me, dog. Charade is so good. Uh, my other favorite anecdote about Charade, by the way, is you know, Cary Grant had never worked with her. Uh, they meet. The first thing she does is spill wine on his tan suit, and he laughs it off. And Stanley Donnan thinks it's so funny he puts it into the movie. Um, oh, and, and so uh, she really realizes that she has sort of a kindred spirit with Cary Grant in terms of the way that the uh, they handle themselves. And this is like I said, she teaches him sort of a smarter way to deal with the press and a way to pull back. And he pulls her aside at one point on it. And he just says, you should learn to like yourself a bit more. And, and I think, you know, I think that's an important moment for her because we haven't delved into the psychology of somebody who suffers that much as a child, but she doesn't, she doesn't like herself. She doesn't understand why everybody says she's pretty. She thinks she's too tall. She thinks she's flat chested, that she has ribs that stick out. She thinks she has big feet. And she's been told all these things by her by- mother, just growing up from the time she was like single digits, like her mother is tearing into her about her looks. You no, know, I sort of accepted myself the way I am. But of course I wanted to have more shape and uh, I don't want to be as tall as I was, especially as I wanted to be a dancer. And as I have rather large feet, once I was up on on toe, you can imagine I was a very tall dancer. I'd like to have had smaller feet. I I hate having big feet. And my friends have pretty feet and wear such pretty shoes. I remember years ago, my mother said I looked like olive oil. You know, uh, Popeye's (laughs) girlfriend. Thin legs and big feet. Am I correct to also say that I read that she suffered a lot of miscarriages? Yes several miscarriages at least five or six yeah jeez she and that and that and the famously she you know want like that's all she wanted like she just she wanted literally to. just wanted a loving family yeah. but what i've always had and maybe that i was born with was an enormous 
love of people, children. The one thing I dreamed of in my life was to have children of my own. It always boils down to the same thing of not only receiving love, but wanting desperately to give it, enormous need to give it. It is true that I had an extraordinary mother. She herself was not a very affectionate person in the sense that I today consider affection. I spent a lot of time looking for it and I found it. A lot of love within her. Not always able to show it. Her second film in 1964 is My Fair Lady. This is a role she she fought for, she wanted. You know, Julie Andrews originally did it on Broadway, but the studio, Jack Warner, was like, no, we need somebody who's bankable for the international audiences. Hepburn was it. She, you know, she was really excited. She spent hours learning to dance. She spent um, days with a vocal coach, um, really thinking that she was going to get to sing it. Both George Cooker and... Uh, Jack Warner lied to her, told her that she was going to be the one singing. She records all the songs and secretly behind her back, they've invited Marnie Noxon, who is an operatic Broadway singer. She also did Maria's voice in West Side Story. They bring her in to dub all the songs. Now, you can actually hear some of Audrey's voice. It's I think it's Just You Wait, Henry Higgins is is the big song that's that's mm-hmm. just hers. But other than that, they really kept her voice, her out, voice of it. out. And yeah. that was devastating to her. My Fair Lady famously is a very hard musical. Everyone in LA and New York was like, well, you know that Julie Andrews deserved this part, la 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 la. And so that was this kind of like extra yeah. uh, sauce. And she initially turned it down because Audrey has like said in an interview, she too wanted Julie Andrews in the role. And when Jack Warner's like, we're not going to hire her. And then they were going to make an offer to another actress. She's like, well, I'm, I might as well do it then. Right. Because she wanted to at least try to do it justice. And then she later regretted taking the role because they wouldn't use her tracks. Right. And the legacy of it is everybody except her gets nominated. You know, there's a Best Supporting right. Actor nomination, Best Actor for Rex Harris. And on top of that, at the 37th Academy Awards, Julie Andrews is nominated for Best Actress for Mary Poppins. She wins. And famously, the first thing she says in her speech is, I'd like to thank Jack Warner. Gag. That's a gag. (laughs) And then on top of that, didn't um, Audrey Hepburn give out the statue for Best Actor to Rex Harrison? Mm -hmm. Yep. Uh, And it's kind of like, God, she's got to like. And he had to thank both of the Eliza Doolittles in the room. Yeah, yeah. Roof. Yeah. I will say, um, overall, My Fair Lady is not my um, favorite movie, I would say. <laughs> Henry I... Higgins is an unwell man. Oh, he's sick. Yeah. Oh, yeah. All I could think of like... was, like, were people just, like, rich and bored back in the day? Yes. And they were like, oh, you're yeah. different. Let's figure out why. <laughs> Can we also really quickly talk about how do you guys feel about Audrey's accent work <laughs> in this movie? I It's it's very theatrical. So take away me. The next film she does is How to Steal a Million. She's cast opposite Peter O'Toole. It's the first time that she's cast off a man who is like age appropriate. <laughs> 
Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Which I just think it's funny that you're almost, you know, 15 years into her career and finally they're just like, here's a guy who might be close to your age. It's the campy, uh, stylish. Peter O'Toole's hot. Yes, he's very, yeah. yeah, yeah. He's pretty great in it. 67, she reteams again with Stanley Donnan for Two for the Road. Uh, which is a, a fractured nonlinear story about a couple's relationship, sort of the demise of their relationship. Uh, I love this film, and I think it's a very much a sign of what's coming in the new Hollywood, which is also the thing that sort of pushes her out of acting, but we'll get there in just a moment. All I can think was like, someone was really, really sad and broken when they wrote this. <laughs> I, I thought like, I was like, is there a couple that hates each other more than this main couple? And then I was like, oh, there is. It's that other fucking second couple who think they have a nice relationship, but they don't. Um, another demon child. Another demon child. I didn't like Two for the Road, honestly. Oh, I, wow. I, really? I really? love Two for the Road, so... Oh, I love it. I, I, I was, it was too painful for me. I was like, this is sad. <laughs> They're sad and sad, sad, sad. The thing is that... I do love that Albert Finney is like seven years younger than her and they're very hot. Well, they're so hot, by the way. And she writes in her personal notes like, oh, he's he's like a nice like guy to work with. He's so he's always asking questions and everything. And truly what she's saying in these notes is I'm fucking him because she has an affair with Albert Finney uh, while while she's still married to Mel Ferrer. But at this point, uh, we should mention she's had a child with Mel Ferrer, uh, Sean Hepburn Ferrer. And their relationship has basically dissolved. She was very controlling yeah. of her career, basically a manager in a sense, and was like really trying to get himself ahead on her coattails. Absolutely. And so they, a year later, they end up divorcing anyways. But before we get to 1968, she does one last film in 1967, which is Wait Until Dark. Um, it is directed by Terrence Young. Terrence Young, who was an injured British soldier in one of the hospitals that she also worked at during World War II, during her, she would assist at hospitals. And that's wild. Yeah, this man ends up being a director for her twice in her career. Um, Wait Until (laughs) Dark, it's a stylish suspense thriller. It's a little mod. It's based off a stage play. She plays a blind woman who is terrorized by these three criminals. Uh, who are searching for a heroin doll, which is heroin hidden in a doll. And uh, yeah, it's it's dark, it's suspenseful, it's fun. I think she's really great in it. After 67, um, she decides, I'm going to take a break. I'm going to start raising my child. I'm going to, you know, stay off the big screen. And also, as I mentioned before, New Hollywood is coming in. You know, she sees something like The Graduate and realizes she would be cast as the Mrs. Robinson role. She doesn't want that. That's not good for her brand. That's not good for who she is and who she sees herself. So she's like, you know what? Uh, Maybe it's time for me to quit acting. She also gets remarried in 1969 and has a second son. Um, This is Andrea Dotti is this Italian psychiatrist that she gets married to. She has a second son with him, Luca Andrea Dotti, who was born in 1970. That relationship is a little, let's just say he's having a lot of affairs. He's having a lot of affairs. He was photographed with like around 200 other yeah. women Jesus during Christ. his marriage. He has yeah. affairs at their house. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's it's not cool. It's not great. And uh, Was she just no. like, I mean... 
do you think this is kind of her wanting to just really be a mom time and really she says that yeah she's like acting really wasn't my passion it stopped being fun for me and she was really like sad that she had to miss so much of sean's life growing up and she was kind of just over it her marriage was falling apart the first one she was just like i kind of just want to be a mom right now it's all i've ever really wanted to do wow do you think like she do you think she knew about the affairs with this dotty guy I mean, and just kind of was like ignoring it to like kind of playhouse yeah and I, I genuinely do and i think there's evidence to suggest that that she wanted a normal a quote-unquote normal functioning relationship and she was willing to overlook a lot of things in order to spare her children the sort of paint yeah she really wanted to make it right. work for her sons even though it was like in newspapers that he was like being photographed with these women oh so my god he really tried to make it work I should mention, by the way, in the 60s, she is able to find her father through the Red Cross and they she meets with him. They do not reconcile. He's a total dick and basically tells her I had no business being a father. And then she continues to financially support him for the rest of his life. Wow. And also during this, like her entire career, her mom was just stage mom the entire time, really hated all of her husbands and everything. And financially supported her the whole yeah. time as well so she's even though she's really she's cruel. paying for her two parents who basically at every turn are well like we don't have the capacity to love you that's so fucked up yeah, it's super dark but she's a people pleaser she truly is uh she decides a script comes along in 1976 it's called robin and marion it's a period piece it's a a robin hood film and it's about the end of robin hood's life sean connery plays robin hood uh she's a year older than sean connery so it's very age-appropriate casting and it's her first film in nine years uh so it was like a big to do that she was returning to the screen but the movie's not that big of a hit it gets some good notes from the press but it, it doesn't you know it's not a big earner for anybody um Nah, she took the role because her son wanted her to, because yeah. James Bond was in it, but she didn't like making the film, like the style of it. So huh. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. She found it very unglamorous. Um, and uh, yeah, I ended up liking the film and I doubt we'll probably mention because I feel like it's kind of a middling entry yeah. into her career. So I doubt we'll mention again, but I, I really like her performance in it, and I like her chemistry with um, Connery, even though he does like hit her in one of the first scenes that he's in. And I was like, <laughs> I was like, no man. Yeah. Um, that was my letterbox review. Sean Connery really does like slapping women. Yeah, I was like, <laughs> I was like, was this necessary guys? Um, he does say sorry, but, uh, but she, she gets him <laughs> in the end. Um, yes. But uh, <laughs> she gets them both. Yeah, she does. The next film she does is bloodline in 1979. She admits uh, around this period, she'd gone into a deep depression. There was the affairs that her husband was having. Their their relationship was ending. She did not even read the script, really. Terrence Young offered it to her. They had worked together before on Wait Until Dark. So in 79, she does Bloodline. It's a thriller. It's garbage. It's awful. There's a subplot where there's like a like snuff film killer. And it's like, had what? Audrey Hepburn read this script, she would not have appeared in this movie. The only thing that comes about it is she meets Ben Gazzara they start having an affair and Ben Gazzara is one of the only guys that like breaks it off with her and is basically like, I don't love you. I'm going through a painful divorce. There's somebody else I'm interested in. He's the one person who like in the history of the world is like, I do not love Audrey Hepburn. 
Um, Imagine the power. Yeah. Wow. I can't. I, yeah. Um, in 81, she does uh, Peter Bogdanovich film. They all laughed, which is loosely based on the stories. Ben Gazzara has been telling him about his affair with Audrey Hepburn, <laughs> but she, he cast Ben Gazzara and she's like really excited to see Ben Gazzara again. Cause she's like, maybe he does love me this time. He does not. Um, no, no, it's not a great like, movie. This is a, this is the movie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's not a great movie. It's funny. There's a lot of like male film critics who really love it. And it's like Quentin Tarantino and Wes Anderson's like, they love it. And I'm just like, yeah, this is a, this is like a, one of those guy movies. I don't understand. Mm -hmm. Like it's mm -hmm. red flags when they love the movie. Yeah. She doesn't come back in to do another film role until the 1987 TV movie, love among thieves with Robert Wagner. It's a movie that really thinks it's charade. It's not, <laughs> um, and then her final film role is a cameo in the Steven Spielberg 1989 film Always uh, she plays it, I, every time I read this they're like she plays an angel named Hap I would argue she's maybe God she's perhaps yeah. God in this movie that's certainly a thing that I watched um, <laughs> I if saw this was her. a Steven Spielberg Yes. Mixed reviews. This would be my one star review. Yeah. Um, I feel like they just saw Audrey Hepburn wandering around the woods and just put a camera on her. Uh -huh. She's fine. I call it the million dollar cameo because she donated all that to UNICEF. Yeah. Oh, wow. Good. Love that. 82, she finally kicks Andrea Dottie to the curb um, and it's dissolved in 82. Um, and then she starts a relationship with this actor named Robert Walters. Um, he's Dutch. They they like love the fact that they can speak Dutch to each other. So cute. <laughs> um, he is the widower of actress Merle Oberon. She stays with him until she passes away. And she says that the those were the best. It was the best relationship of her life. And they never married, though they considered themselves married in the almost decade that they spent together. And I guess the other big thing that we should talk about is her humanitarian work. She basically gets involved with unicef in the 50s but she spends a vast majority of the last part of her life starting in 1988 working with unicef to feed children in nations that are war-torn or impoverished it basically becomes her big calling post-acting she throws herself into it like it's a job they can't like these are unicef is not an organization that they can like pay for things necessarily like they can pay for her to fl fly places that's it and right. so she ends up putting up a lot of the money her, herself. She ends up asking people, you know, people if she can tour these places, meet these children. To a lot of these children, she's not a celebrity. She's not right. a movie star. She's a, a woman who is there to help in any way that she can. Uh, she becomes a big advocate. She does TV. To, like, she does weeks on end of television. She does something like 15 interviews a day. A lot of them, she won't even allow them to talk about her career. She only will talk about UNICEF. Um, but she's really leveraging her fame, the fact that she is the Audrey Hepburn, to give money and charity to these children. Right. It's funny because I think about, like, is there an example before Audrey Hepburn doing this type of thing? You know, like, I think in the late 80s and 90s, it became kind of en vogue, you know, but, like... You know, I think of like Princess Diana, who was kind of similarly known for the same thing. You know, they're they're nobody but famous. They are just celebrities who are shining a light on this. And and I think obviously in the days since, you know, I think most I would say millennial 
at least millennial kids growing up saw the like the commercials for like giving money to Africa that just didn't exist. Right. I think before Audrey Hepburn they're, they're, and I don't No, She really weaponized her celebrity yeah. to drag cameras to like Somalia and everywhere to highlight these children that were suffering. And she always brought up like her own past in the war to like yeah. compare it to. And she was like genuinely heartbroken every time she went somewhere. It's it's funny because she sort of takes over this role from Danny Kay, who was doing a lot. Mm-hmm. I don't want to take away from Danny Kay, but Danny yeah. Kay was essentially doing everything that he could up to an extent because really UNICEF wanted these these celebrities to to be sort of just the like a face of something and they didn't require that much of them Danny K did go above and beyond but she really took it to the next level she really was like no this is you know we're going to play it this way because i can get an audience with these world leaders in a way that you know x y and z from UNICEF can't and yeah, I mean, I guess now I'm thinking like, you know, it always comes back to Jane Fonda. Jane Fonda was doing something similar with the war efforts. But this mm-hmm. type of humanitarian work, you know, uh, I think the the only modern day person I can kind of think of would be like Angelina Jolie. Yeah, uh, pretty much. With like her work. I mean, I think certainly now there's like, I don't know, Hayden Panettiere wants to save dolphins or some shit. Uh, <laughs> and, and like stuff like that. But like... Like everybody has a cause just to like help with their brand. But she was like only taking on these handful of movie roles to donate her salary. Yes. People were like, even off camera, she would immediately go and hug these children and stuff. And everyone's like, oh, it smells awful. There's disease. There's everything. And she did not hesitate. Yeah. She was in it. Right. And I think, you know, thinking about, you know, she was one of those starving kids. You know, she was, uh, you know, living in a country that had been forgotten and left for dead. And I can only imagine, you know, I, I saw like this little biography thing on YouTube about her. And just like that part really got to me like, man, this woman who had everything in the world, you know, had everything, but truly came from, you know, even... Uh, I think a lot about, you know, when people think, oh, Audrey Hepburn, she's just beautiful and had, you know, everything kind of handed to her or whatever. But knowing that her life began, you know, even though her family was well to do, it was all wiped out. And the suffering that she went through, I can't even, you know, it's it's a... (laughs) It's a different she thing. She's literally like, a depressed four-year-old just being left with her grandparents every time, just wanting affection. Yeah. So she just, she really took it personally that it was like in the 80s that people, like children were not being fed. Like she took that personally. Yeah, yeah. And I, I just, I don't know that we get that too often anymore from celebrities, even though like I know that there are some celebrities who do certain things like that, but like, to the caliber of a star like Audrey Hepburn, it seems so rare. Um, and I, this is not like a new story, but like people have definitely said this. She was remembered for being pretty. Yeah. And mm-hmm. how, and how fucked up is that? Because she did so much, uh, you know, to really even change the culture of being empathetic to other people around the world, you know? Um, and, that's not to diminish her work as you know, she was a beautiful actress, but uh, she fully was a humanitarian and to give a fucking Steven Spielberg movie and to give the entire salary with no, like this was not like a mock war Wahlberg situation where people were calling you out to like do the right thing. She just like, intrinsically knew how to do the right thing. And that's just like literally doing the work to give it to UNICEF. Yeah, like, yeah. She doesn't have to fucking act anymore, <laughs> but she was like, 
yeah, I guess I'll fucking do that stupid hap movie. And, you know, because I want to pay for more, you know, meals to kids in Africa or whatever. Children must be the priority. We, we have to stop thinking that first it's the economy or the armament or whatever. First it has to be a child because a child is the most um, fragile and the most vulnerable. In 1992, she begins suffering abdominal pain, and essentially they find out that she um, has cancer uh, in her uh, small intestine, and it's metastasized. She has chemotherapy. She has surgery. Um, she's going to re- try and recover from her surgery. Jivon, uh, she gets a private jet to fly her to Switzerland for her final Christmas. Her sons and her partner are told she's going to die. They refuse to tell her um but she knows she spends that christmas giving away her stuff to everybody um the and essentially you know she's put into hospice and then she's confined to bed rest um and she passes away and she passes away with her family around her she passes away with her ex-husbands there all, all of them come um and i don't know it's really sweet and sad um and if people are like concerned about you mentioned way up way back at the beginning of her career, you know, she got to keep her costumes when she died of the like, quote unquote, memorabilia that she had kept uh, that people had found that she hadn't like given away or sold for money for charity were her Oscars and a couple scripts. Wow. So mm-hmm. everything else. I mean, yeah, I, I mean, this is a person who <laughs> lived through war torn you know, uh, a childhood and, and knows about like what's important, knows that things come and they go. Um, and yeah, I just think she's so fucking cool. Like I, I, you know, she was a beautiful human being, beautiful dancer, actress, but like an EGOT also, winner, technically. She te- is an EGOT winner. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I just, I don't know. I, like I said, I didn't have a lot of familiarity with her work and her, st- I when, when they fucking told me that she, <laughs> lived through this horrifying you know starvation period i was like holy shit like there's so much that a lot of people just don't know about her and um yeah i uh i'm glad we i'm glad chelsea you brought her to us because i feel very i feel rewarded now because it's not just about like i think again it's easy to be like oh they just gave her all this like <laughs> love and adoration because she's which was beautiful and she was but uh there's so much more i think we've talked at length about Audrey Hepburn, both the person and the icon. Let's talk about Audrey Hepburn, the movie star, and move into our one-star reviews. So, Chels, you, as our guest, get to go first. What do you got for us? What is your one-star review? Oh, my goodness. I was very tempted to say all the stuff she did with Mel Ferrer, (laughs) but I have to say... The most painful thing I sat through was The Unforgiven. Uh-huh. I yes, absolutely sir. hated this film. She all but disowned it afterwards. It is so incredibly racist and hard to watch. It's I just could not believe what I was watching in that moment. It's very it's not even very well made. No, it's really not. It's just it it's... looks like trash. It is trash. I I just can't with that film. It's funny because it was in this moment when we're talking that I remembered that one, yeah, it's a fucking bonkers and bad movie, but two, she's not good in it. Like that moment where she's like, it's, it's very much just like an old school version of, I don't know, like 
23 and me the movie and like <laughs> yeah she's like Wait. she very clearly did not want to be on set she wanted to be anywhere else the performance is lacking it's also super creepy because she's like this child that's adopted in but also Burt Lancaster the lead of the film is old enough to remember when he she wasn't the sister and like has a thing for her and they end yeah. up hooking up by the end yeah like I watched this film so other people don't have to. <laughs> like, don't watch it. I wanted to say Mayerling, which was a TV thing yeah, she Mayerling's did with her really husband. Bad. I wanted to, like, pick out all the passion projects she did with Mel Ferrer. But no, The Unforgiven takes the cake. It's garbage. Don't watch it. I, I try not to tell people not to watch things, but it's not good. I do want to do a quick overview of the plot. Essentially, the movie is about um, uh, Audrey Hepburn plays a young girl who you find out is an indigenous Native American, um, and she was basically stolen as a child by these white people, and now her tribe wants her back, and uh, for some reason, you're supposed to side with the white people, um, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. on top of that, um, yeah. not only is Audrey Hepburn, because she's like a prairie girl, or raised prairie girl, should she not have her accent, but she does. <laughs> she She's like British in the. Well, also, I, I she's, feel like she's trying to have a little bit of a Texan accent. There are some moments where I'm like, kind yeah. of. <laughs> she's trying. If you squint, it's like the Benedict Cumberbatch yes. trying to do the American Southern yeah. accent. It's yeah. bad. Why, Ben, am I so different from the other neighbor women? They stick to their wagons where they belong. Maybe they're just not interested in finding a husband. Get on your horse and go home to mama. But also, on top of that, like, half the time she's in red face and half the time yes. she's not. And I, I know they had to do a break in filming because she had broken her back. And, but like the, the her skin color is so inconsistent to the movie. And it's just it's, like, what the fuck is happening? It's only dark when like the lines are like, well, you might be Native American. And they're like, and then it's like shot of Audrey like in red face. Like yeah. every every other moment before that, she's just like living her pale fantasy. And like the the back end where she's like she walks out in full like Native American regalia and like the fucking paint on her face. She's like, it's... Tis me, Native American Audrey Hepburn. And it's like, what the fuck? And this is the woman who turned down a role in Sayonara because she's like, you would not believe me in an Asian role. Yes. And like, I feel like she did not read the script. I wonder if her husband signed her up for this. It's bad. It's so, so That's awful. Very, very good pick, Chels. Very good. Absolutely. Louis? Um... You know, I am just going to be that girl and have to say that I fucking hate Breakfast at Tiffany's. I don't blame you. Um, That's fair. (laughs) Of all of the movies where it is style over substance, I think this takes the cake. I think, you know, they're trying to be, it's like very like mod and funny and like the whole moment where they're like gonna steal for fun (laughs) and like they're wearing the masks. It just, there's nothing about this movie that, that like, the only charming part of this movie is her singing Moon River. Everything else, and and maybe at the time it would have been charming, but, like, I don't, fuck that. No, even then. It's, like, if you're a white person, great. But literally, they're, like, want to do, like, bad things because we're, like, interesting people. (laughs) It's, like, no, you can't go into fucking Tiffany's with $10 and, like, ask the dude to give you something. Like, if you were not as hot as they were and as straight as they were and as white as they were they would have getting kicked the fuck out like I, and also the movie just does not commit i don't uh, maybe you know better since you read the novella but like 
is she fucking for money? Yes or no? Like, yes. Is, but in the, in, in the story. Yes. That's but a little not- bit more clear in the novella. But also this film, because they had to change it so much to make it like appropriate. It's just boring. Nothing happens. Like, Literally nothing man happens. is like watching paint dry. It's yeah. on yeah. top of being racist. Right. The, 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 the racist part <laughs> um, is also in that. Yes. But I'll, I, the, the, the movie takes like, the wildest turn when like turns out she's her name's not Holly Golightly. Like no fucking shit. <laughs> she's like has this husband and like life and she's like, no, but I don't want that. I, I, I guess this is a story about a young woman who Literally wants married more. married to a Beverly Hillbilly. Right. Who <laughs> wants something more out of life and has conned her way to get it, I guess. And this other hot guy who is being paid for by, I don't know, some sad woman. It's just, <laughs> it's, all I can think of is this is straight white nonsense. And I... It is way more like the poster has more charm than this movie does. Okay, like it's 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 a no for me, dog. Yeah, I I agree with everything you say, everything you just said because it just it it just rings so hollow. Everything about yes. it. It I mean it it's like too stylized for for any sort of uh, like empathy that it's supposed to convey. It's mm-hmm. it's too. Uh, obscure when it should be specific about certain things and and you're every right to ask is holly golightly a sex worker because the way the film presents it it's almost like no or yeah the film it 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 doesn't want to go the whole way like and you're right like the whole idea of if i'm going to empathize with this woman who has escaped this life that she does not want like it does not look like a woman who is struggling to me. You know, it does not look like she, like when she has to, like I'm more empathetic to like her husband who literally has found her and tells, she tells him to fuck off. And I'm like, wait, what? Like, why? Like, why are you (laughs) being And the film's told through the eyes of the dude. So you're just like gazing and being creepy towards her. And I just can't. Yeah. yeah. That's why I never understood it until I watched every other Audrey Hepburn (laughs) film. I'm like, oh, okay. I don't want to put you in a cage. I want to love you. The same thing. No, it's not. Holly? I'm not Holly. I'm not Nuna May either. I don't know who I am. I'm like Cat here. We're a couple of no-name slobs. We belong to nobody, and nobody belongs to us. We don't even belong to each other. Gavin, what was your one-star review? Well, I'm glad you brought up the Mel Ferrer Green Mansions, Chels, because that's my one-star review. I wow. had a feeling. Yeah. I just had a feeling somebody was going to say it, because Mel Ferrer, he just needs to be stopped. Yeah, he's so bad. Um... Anthony Perkins is the lead in this movie. He plays, I guess... Our favorite little gay boy. Yeah, our favorite little gay boy. I, uh, he plays a, a Venezuelan, I guess. Right, right. Um, and when he's like, I was born in Caracas. And I was like, <laughs> where are you, gal? Um, it's something. And, you know, he basically finds his way into the jungle. He runs afoul of some natives. He gets taken in by a man who has a mysterious daughter named Rima, who mm-hmm. is um, Audrey Hepburn's character. Uh, and she's a mysterious jungle girl, as you can guess. 
super racist yes Um, i actually don't even want to go further with the plot the plot's really stupid um lots of is there a plot is it just (laughs) random murder just random murder um there's natives that they're killing people because that's what people thought natives did at that time period um apparently this is based off of some great romance novel from the turn of the century i can imagine um and essentially rima in the i'm gonna spoil this off for you because it's insane rima gets burned alive at the end but it's okay because she's like a spirit with the forest so she Um, grows back elsewhere (laughs) right um, fantasia 2000 yeah absolutely it's called the hatta flower it blooms for the space of a moon and then disappears it never dies if you look in this place tomorrow and it is gone you must not be sad because you know it still exists not very far away this movie to me i was like why is she in this b move <laughs> like, yeah what is going on literally doing favors for her husband who's just trying and grifting and just trying to be something and just keeps failing and hard uh you know the the only legacy that this movie has is that um, the comic is eventually adapted by DC Comics, and Rima becomes a DC Comics character who ends up appearing in Super Friends as Rima the Jungle Girl. So what? <laughs> yeah. So I'll have it as up. you will. That's a choice. Yeah. Was there anything else that you guys saw that you didn't particularly like besides Two for the Road, Louis, which you are not allowed to say bad things about? The Unforgiven was the only other one that I thought like, I, I not the only other one, but like the, that was. I'm glad you brought that one up because yeah <laughs> yeah. I'm going to shout out what was almost a real one-star review, um, Mayerling, which was another one of Mel's passion projects. It was like a movie of the week that they did live. And then I just have to say, I fell asleep watching Love Among Thieves. I fell right to sleep. I have watched every single Audrey Hepburn film, television, whatever. Oh my goodness. It's the only one I fell asleep during. Robert Wagner should not be allowed to do things. <laughs> we know what he did to Natalie Wood. We, we do know what he did to Natalie Wood. Um, Bloodline's real fucking terrible. It's just genuinely... and like She literally helping a friend there. Yeah, and like, it's frustrating because Bloodline would make like a great like um, 70s like Umberto Lenzi Giallo but instead it's this big budget like James Bondy-esque movie with Audrey Hepburn and James Mason and Michelle Phillips and Omar Sharif and it's just like no why are any of you in this movie like you should be dubbed <laughs> Italians um, but yeah, yeah it's so bad but we've said enough negative let's stick to the positive let's move into our five star reviews I'm about to really disappoint you because I think the one film that gets all of her superpowers, her charm, her drama, everything, and it just works is Two for the Road. (laughs) (laughs) I adore this film. The first time I saw it, I was just not ready for how much I would enjoy it. And like, I feel like every independent romantic drama owes so much to this. Stanley Donnan, he is doing what the other girls wanted to do. Wow. (laughs) More respect to his name. He's just having so much silly fun making this film. And apparently this is like the happiest he ever saw Audrey making a film and they've been working together forever. Yeah, that's crazy. I didn't know that. And her and Albert Fanny, I'm like, oh my goodness, I finally understand. He is so hot in this. So many short shorts. A lot of short shorts. Yeah, I'll give you that. 
so yeah i enjoyed the heck out of this movie when she yells at the child i was like yes get her (laughs) and that and that's really i mean it's very more than any of the other films it's such an easy movie to tell the plot line to is it's it's the story of the the beginning and end of this relationship but it's told in fragmented parts some scenes you're seeing from the end of the relationship some scenes you're seeing you know fuck you 500 days of summer this is oh, yeah. <laughs> like this is like four different timelines yeah. and it's so consistent i think it's so well edited yeah and it's just so much fun if people remember so many of her other beautiful romantic comedies and i feel like this one just needs a little bit more justice so maybe louis can rewatch it but i understand what louis is saying by saying like it's too painful because it is occasionally that does, is true if it's you've so ever been dark. in a relationship that's like that you know is ending it really hits and it's and, very prickly yeah um and that's kind of why i love it because it's not just all the sunshine and rainbows of the beginning it shows you the hard parts of relationships and all of her other films i don't feel like they do that so she got to do a little bit of drama a little bit of comedy and she looks amazing those costumes are oh my goodness gorgeous (laughs) i think maybe my like issue is that they give the guy who clearly i think is the more fucked up one of the two of them so much like runway i'm like this guy clearly like is being resentful is you know is like i don't want this fuck marriage la 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 and like somehow she's being turned into the one who has changed him somehow and i and that maybe just is like the time of it all but i'm I mean, glad in the end she like they when they're in the car kind of like driving and she's like mm-hmm. bitch i'm here what else do you want mm-hmm. um but yeah it's like so fucking hard to get to that place um no, and you're not wrong. And I think also oh, yeah. that goes back to exactly what Chels was saying, that this becomes sort of the blueprint for a lot of other, because the uh, most independent romantic comedies that come after this are a lot from the male viewpoint. I've managed to persuade you that it's absolutely imperative that we get to Saint-Tropez by the day before yesterday. Why do you always get taken in? Oh, baby, that's how it is, okay? You want me not to work? Is that what you want? Just wish that you'd stop sniping. I haven't said a word. Just because you use a silencer doesn't mean you're not a sniper. We're not going on like this for the rest of our lives. For, for my five-star review, yes. Uh, I just really, really loved uh, The Nun's story. <gasps> I, 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 it, it, be, I, all the issues I had with, you know, a lot of her stylish movies that didn't really have, to me at least... Um, a lot underneath mm-hmm. the nun story is like the exact opposite you know stripping away all of the style and just like counting on her to tell this really emotional story that i thought was super engrossing and engaging and like i love that this movie knows exactly what it wants to do like from the very beginning like she has this monologue that's basically just like sometimes you are called to do something and that's all I need. Like, I don't need any more motivation. Like, and that sets up this entire story of this woman who feels this calling and this urge to not only serve as a health worker, but as, a, you know, a missionary, a serve Jesus Christ. And I love just, you don't often, I think, get um, stories where, like, faith is really tested or uh, people struggle with it in, in a very non-judgmental way. You know, like, she is a normal human being, like... The idea that nuns are normal human beings and, you know, can have these struggles and she wants so badly to 
be a nun. She so badly wants to serve and and, and uh, be this type of person. And God, the the part where she, the the head nun or whatever asks her to like fail her exams yeah. to like show God humble herself. She, yeah. Yes, mm-hmm. I was like, this is so fucked up. And I'm so glad later in the movie, this other nun's like, that was fucked up. They should not have made you do that. Mm-hmm. Um, but. I just, I don't know. The ending of this movie is so gorgeous and like devastating. Like, you know, to see she starts out as this like optimistic, hopeful, full of faith woman. And then to like end fully shaken and, but also realizing that there's life beyond this. It's like, there's no music. It's so quiet. Uh, I think it's a gorgeous, gorgeous movie. And also deals, I think with racism and fucked up shit really, really well. You know, she's like, why can't I, <laughs> She wants to be in Africa helping these kids. She wants, you know, and this, there's so much about this movie. I, I can't recommend this movie enough. And I think especially if you think that she's only about style and flash, like, I think this is just like the perfect example of like, it's nah. It's such a beautiful, beautiful film. And I think mm-hmm. it was you, Chels, who put on your letterbox, like, if I could have seen this on the big screen. And I, mm-hmm. I want to echo that 100% because it's also just an absolutely gorgeously made film. Gorgeous. It's Be- such a beautiful film. Yeah. And, like, the whole time she is just struggling with these very basic obedience and humbling herself and trying to give herself over when all she wants to do is serve people and do good in the world. And like, she's constantly just tested all the time by the nuns around her. It right. really, I think it's a really good way to damn Catholics, but also show their process. Yeah. Right. As an ex Catholic myself, I'm like, yes, I really love watching this and sh- them showing you how horrible and hard it is for people to do this. And like you, like, Anytime she is in trouble for talking during the grand silence or somebody coming to talk to her, it's like, stop talking to her. I was so stressed watching this film more than most of her other films. I was like, so invested. It's so gorgeous. Don't be proud of me, Father. This is really flight. It will be so much easier in the Congo to remember I'm nothing. There will be no worldly associations in the bush station, in the jungle. And Hepburn said this is one of her favorite films that she made. Like, it's right at the top for her. Absolutely. Um, so my five star review is something completely different. And so we're going to go to <laughs> we're going to go to 1967's Wait Until Dark. Um, I mentioned earlier, Terrence Young directed. It's based off a play. Um, it was produced by Mel Ferrer. So I guess he did do one good thing in his life. But <laughs> just the one. Just That's the why one. I couldn't bunch all of them <laughs> together for a one star. She plays a character named Susie, who is a blind woman who is constantly pushing herself to be what? Uh, what does she keep saying? The the best blind girl in the entire world, <laughs> and, um, and but she's left alone in her apartment by her boyfriend, uh, future Alfred from Batman the Animated Series, Ephraim Zimbalist Jr. And he, he, as he goes away, she's left in her apartment with a doll that she is not aware contains heroin she's being menaced by two con men and a full-out criminal that's played by alan arkin we mentioned this earlier and as the movie goes on it gets darker and darker alan arkin kills multiple people he basically tortures this woman alone in her apartment um she eventually traps him by cutting out all the lights to make him as blind as she is and um 
she eventually gets the upper hand or might not have the upper hand, depending on what happens. I will say there's a moment. Um, this doesn't really spoil anything, but there's a moment where she stabs Alan Arkin. And to me, that was the moment that sold it for me because before she stabs him, because she's playing a very realistic person, she's 100% a real human in this movie before she stabs him. She screams in pain. Like she knows this thing that she's going to do is so awful, but she has no choice but to do it. And it's such a brilliant character choice. And as soon as I, I've seen this movie before, but as soon as I saw that, I was like, this is it. I was like, mm-hmm. this is this is brilliant. This is a full on person that she played and yeah she's a bit stylish in the movie and you know they did the light contacts to to make her eyes look a little less popping on on screen the way that they would but uh, but you know she she's doing everything she can to shine through just the image of audrey hepburn the fashion icon and showing you that she is audrey hepburn the actor and i i just really think it's a brilliant film and it's also fucking scary I, I know surprise, that- surprise, Gavin's picking the scary movie. <laughs> Pick up the cane. And tap on the floor, right where you are, so I know where you are. Go on, tap. Tap. Keep tapping. Keep tapping. Keep tapping. Were there any other uh, movies that we wanted to just give quick shout-outs that we really liked? I mean, I love Roman Holiday. Yeah. I love the Children's Hour. Just, I feel like my I was back and forth on the Children's Hour and Wait Until Dark, and I, I decided to watch them back to back. And the children, I mean, uh, Wait Until Dark won out in the end, but the Children's it's Hour. It's much more of a showcase for her. Yeah. I feel like Children's yeah. Hour, Shirley and McLean, Shirley. Yeah. really steals that. But yeah, they're but both so but, good in that. Yeah. Uh, the same. I, I, my three were going to be Roman Holiday, Children's Hour, and I, I, I famously love Charade. Um, Charade is such a bop. It's a bop. <laughs> it is she's a bop. Like, she's a teeny bop girl. Um, I was. It's funny, I was thinking right now, like, man, of her, like, iconic, quote-unquote, roles, I think, like, Roman Holiday, for me, is, like, my favorite. Funny Face is, like, the next one in line that I would, like, say that I like the best. And then the other ones are just like, Ugh. So before we go into our fast forward, why don't we do our mixed reviews review? So my one star review was 1959's Green Mansions. Mine was 1961's Breakfast at Tiffany's. And mine was 1961's The Unforgiven. My five star review was 1967's Wait Until Dark. My five star review was 1959's The Nun Story. And mine was 1967's Two for the Road. Pew, pew, pew. So let's get in to our fast forward. Anytime that we've done a subject who has left the mortal coil, it's sort of impossible for us to give like, oh, here's what we want from them. Here's the thing that they're doing next. But I do want to impart that on the way out, uh, I want to say that if there's anything that you remember Audrey Hepburn for besides the style is that she was such a giving, caring person. Um, she was a woman who suffered severe trauma as a childhood that she never got over. And I think part of that led her to be such a generous, kind and loving person that she felt she had to spread that wealth of humanity around. And so that's my idea of a fast forward tour that if 
you know, if you are to remember her, don't only think of Breakfast at Tiffany's. Think of her as an actual person. Yeah, I think it's, and I was just reading right now, she raised, and, and her organization, like, there's the Audrey Hepburn Society that is chaired by her son, um, and that that fund has created, uh, they've raised almost $100 million to date, which is kind of an unfathomable amount of money, um, and it, it's, her son says, you know, she would always say, I take what I do seriously, but I do not take myself seriously. This is just someone who reminds me a lot of Viola Davis, you know, and just kind of like having this really hard childhood also reminds me a lot of Cicely Tyson and just how we are here on this earth to serve each other and how she was doing everything she could to, you know, one, not only have this family life and, and, and give her sons um, a normal childhood that she did not have, um, but then also fully recognizing, oh my goodness, I went through something horrific and these horrific things are still happening today. And so I need to go out of my way to give and, and, and ensure that that's not something that, you know, continues. And the culture changed with Audrey Hepburn. Like, I don't think we can say that often um, with our subjects, like, but the cultural, like the look, the work and the philanthropy, it's, it's incredible and you know it's uh there is a reason why she is the icon that she is you cannot think of hollywood without thinking of audrey yeah there's just like her sons have done such a great job keeping her memory alive and continuing the work i even have it audrey's little daydream is a children's (sighs) book but it's a very dark children's book it talks about her life during world war ii as if she's a child has to stay in bed and she's daydreaming about what would become (sighs) of her life and it includes things like breakfast at tiffany's and funny face and the beautiful things she would do so i'm really glad it's a really dark children's book but (laughs) i kind of recommend it her son did that beautiful things can come from ugly places you know and and i think that if anything that's maybe a great thing to take away from this and and leaving um audrey behind is just that you know you can come from literally war-torn, um, be starving on the street, eating grass and flowers to sustain yourself, and you can still become the biggest star in the world and have this legacy continue for, you know, ever. Um, and, and to me, that's, you know, she wasn't, she was a Hollywood star, but she wasn't, you know, like, like I mean, comparing her to like a Joan Crawford or other stars who were very particularly about their Hollywood, you know, and and glamour and this and that. In the end, like you said, Gavin, she was fully just like, whatever we have to do to do this new thing that I'm doing right now is what's important. Um, And she and to give away all her iconic dresses and things like that. It's just like, man, wow, what a woman she she really was just a once in a lifetime type of person. It's crazy. And that's I think that's really what what it's at. I don't know if there will ever be another quite like audrey hepburn and And she died so young 63 i'm really glad that you brought her uh to us chels because i feel myself getting emotional i feel myself (laughs) feeling things about audrey that i 
would not oh, yeah. have before. She's an incredible person, and I hope more people just do a little bit more research and look beyond the poster. Don't watch Breakfast at Tiffany's, maybe. <laughs> no, don't do it. Like, it's go go a little deeper. Find some of the cooler things that she's done in her life, because she's amazing. She had the range. She had the range. <laughs> she had the range. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, I think I think that beautifully wraps up Audrey Hepburn. And I'm so thankful that we had this chance to really spend the two weeks and really get to know her as more than a person. I I don't want to be cliche and say, you know, there's a new documentary that just came out about her called More Than an Icon. But I think that's, I think that's truly, yeah, beautiful way to memorialize her. But speaking (laughs) of more than icons, Chelsea, (laughs) this is our moment to let you plug your stuff. Thank you so much for being on our show. It's been really, really fantastic to have you here. It's been so much fun spending both this time with you and Audrey Hepburn. And this, you know, tell us where we can find you online. Tell us all the 9,000 podcasts that you're on. (laughs) If I can remember them all. No, thank you so much. I've had so much fun talking and researching this and watching even things I haven't seen before. But you can find me talking about Audrey Hepburn on Twitter at Chels725. And then let me try to get through all these podcasts community rewatch podcast where gavin has is a guest he's upcoming i don't know when that will be out someday (laughs) follow us on twitter and then i have the those gals have moxie thank you for the shout out that's kind of where we just talk about pop culture and random things and movies and slander ryan murphy Mm. like i'm so good at yeah your guys's your guys's hatred of the remake of rebecca's single-handedly kept me from watching it so (laughs) don't watch it and i love lily james but don't watch it and then um i have this new one the untitled cinema gals project where morgan she's a reviewer we just talk about all these different movies and subjects we don't do deep dives like y'all on actresses we we figure out why carrie mulligan doesn't have an oscar Mm -hmm. or amy Mm -hmm. adams we Mm -hmm. investigate and we get to some results but yeah go go follow us (laughs) find me on you can see it all on my twitter I do want to say your presence online is so necessary and sweet and and just wonderful. And you're uh, you're a youngin, and you give me hope. <laughs> like, and so that's. But I mean, Louis and I have had this conversation many, many times. Nobody, nobody's online persona is good. Like online no personas ones. are really bad. But yours is so nice and genuine and necessary and i love every time i see you pop up on your feed and you have such a unique voice online too so just please stay you uh it's perfect you're perfect so you're gonna make me cry and i've already <laughs> cried so much thinking about audrey hepburn but i don't try <laughs> that's well, the key yeah, i was gonna say you're very good at it <laughs> But no, y'all are wonderful and do wonderful work here. You're my favorite podcast, oh. so I hoodwink you. Oh, uh-huh. you, did, you did, yeah. Oh, start. Uh. Um, <laughs> <laughs> love to under, undercut any moment of actual emotion. Um, speaking of undercutting any moment of actual emotion, if you want to contact us at The Mixed Reviews online, you can find us on Twitter at, at The Mixed Reviews. We're also on Facebook. Just type in The Mixed Reviews. If you want to email us, you can email us at reviewsmixed at gmail.com. We're always taking suggestions. If you want to see me reacting to watching movies on Instagram, you can find us at the underscore mixed underscore reviews. And if you want to listen to us the way that you have been doing this entire episode, please subscribe. We're on a plethora of podcast apps. We're on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play Music. We're on Audible. We're on Amazon. We are everywhere. 
Mm-hmm. You can't escape from us. Absolutely not. And if you do listen to us on Apple Podcasts, please stop by and leave us a little five-star rating and a nice little review, and we'll read it on the show like we did at the beginning of this episode. Thank you guys so much. We hope you had a great Valentine's Day weekend. Absolutely. Um, it was a long weekend as well. Hope you're surviving the cold weather, and we'll see you next time. See the world, there's such a lot of world to see. We're after the same.